smelly feet, okay? And I'm afraid that when I am married to this beautiful young lady that she's going to smell my feet and she is not going to want to share the bedroom with me. Dad, what should I do? And that's his son. There's really a simple answer to this. All you need to do is when you go to bed at night, put on fresh socks and she'll be fine. Fresh socks. Okay, Dad, thanks. And the young lady is wrestling with her secret and finally confides in her mother and says, Mom, I have a secret and I need to share it with you. And she says, Mom, I have really bad morning breath. And the mom says, but sweetie, everybody does. And she says, Mom, you don't understand. This morning breath is so bad. The wallpaper's peeling in my bedroom. It's so bad, I'm afraid that my husband-to-be will not want to share the same bedroom with me. Mom, what should I do? And the mom gives her this wonderful counsel. He says, sweetheart, as soon as you wake up in the morning, while he's going to the bathroom, immediately go downstairs to the kitchen and make a pot of coffee. And by that time, he should be done in the bathroom. And then immediately go to the bathroom, brush your teeth, but do not say a word to him until you've brushed your teeth. Mom, that's genius. Thank you. And so this young man and this, one, this young woman got married, and for the first six months, it was pure rapture until one morning, the young man wakes up to discover he has lost one of his socks. And he is frantically searching under the bed covers for the sock and wakes her up in the process, and she immediately turns to him, and she asks him, what are you doing? And he looks aghast, and with this fright on his face, he says, oh, no, you must have swallowed my sock. <laughs> Marriage is not without its struggles. Amen, church? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some of us thinking, I just wish my problems were that small. But marriage is not without its struggles. And honestly, the counsel that we get and the decisions that we make prior to the wedding are absolutely crucial. Let me share with you a hypothetical story here. I want you to imagine for a moment a young man and a young woman engaged to each other. And, he begin, and, and, and during this engagement, you know, they're falling more and more in love, it seems. And they're looking forward to this wedding six months down the road. But at about this time, he gradually begins to notice something different about this young lady. He notices that she seems to always be very busy and not have as much time for him. She seems to take less and less opportunity to talk with him. There seems to be a lack of eye contact when they do talk. There doesn't seem to be as much laughter as before. And she always seems pensive, never really present in the moment. And then he discovers that she has been spending considerable time with an old boyfriend. And her heart has grown cold and estranged. What does he do? What does he do? The apostle Paul, the father of a bride-to-be, finds himself giving advice in a similar situation in our passage today. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. I hope you will put up with a little of my foolishness, but you are already doing that. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your mind's may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. But I do not think 
I am in the least inferior to these super apostles. I may not be a trained speaker, but I do have knowledge. I have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. You see, this bride-to-be, of course, is the Corinthian church. Paul was the spiritual father to this church, and Christ is the groom. Christ is the one that these, this church has been betrothed to. <laughs> now, according to the scriptures, Paul uses the metaphor of marriage to speak of our relationship with Christ. Ephesians 5, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. He is the head of the church as the husband is the head of the wife. That is the context of marriage. Paul also, however, uses the metaphor of the engagement or betrothal period in which there is a time in which right now we are committed to him, but at the time in the future in which we will be married to him. Matthew 25, Paul, excuse me, Jesus gives a parable of the five wise and the five foolish virgins, and the wedding feast is yet to come. In, in Revelation 19, we see this wedding supper of the Lamb. And so both marriage and engagement portray this type in different angles, of course, but portray this type of relationship that we have with Christ. And Paul says, I have become very jealous I fear that I have promised you to one who is to become your husband that you will be married to. And so he's using the engagement or betrothal metaphor here. But he says something is happening. You see, the church, you and me, have been promised to Christ as a chaste virgin, a NIV says a pure virgin. Our hearts are pure and they are devoted to Christ. And it, <coughs> it says we have a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Do you see that there in verse 3? A sincere and pure devotion to Christ. This word sincere the, the, comes from a Greek root word meaning single. Not like Single as opposed to married. I'm talking about single as in a single focus or a single desire. It's actually the opposite of our English word duplicity. It's like a singularity. And this word for pure devotion is a synonym. It actually in the Greek rhymes, the two words. Paul is obviously focusing here on this type of devotion and passion and desire for Christ, even as an engaged woman would have for her, her man that she's to be married to one day. But something is happening, and this devotion is being uh, supplanted by another devotion. Paul says these quote-unquote super apostles are coming in, and they're undermining who Jesus is. They're undermining the gospel, what he has done for us. And you are accepting another spirit. He says, these people, they may be trained speakers, but I have knowledge. <coughs> you know, in the past, as we've been talking about being ignited and passionate about God and about the things of his kingdom and falling in love with Jesus and pursuing our first love, this has to do with the heart, but this, e this morning, I want to focus on the mind. Knowledge has to do with the mind. And we need to realize that if we get the wrong knowledge, the wrong information, the wrong truth, so to speak, which really is no truth at all, you follow me, it can lead us astray. And this devotion and this passion that we have for Christ can become undermined. Many in our day, teens as they go off to college, become seduced by supposed knowledge, by what is commonly called science and is not science at all. It is simply the rantings and false conclusions of observations, whether it be in the area of philosophy or whether it be in the area of science and they call evolution, truth, and fact, anything but. 
and false knowledge, false conclusions of men, false teachings have led them astray. The, the, <coughs> the statistic that's out there by the Barna Research Group is that 70 plus of those who go, who, who graduate from high school, eventually stop going to church. 70 percent plus. Something is leading them astray. Now, I'm not going to blame it all on the, the colleges because this truly is a heart issue, but it is also, and this is my focus this morning, it is a mind issue. It is, how, it is a thinking issue. It is a truth issue. He says these false apostles, they come <coughs> and they preach a different Jesus. They preach a different, they, they, they offer a different spirit, even a different gospel. Now, let me, let's understand something here. <clears throat> that if we choose to follow a different Jesus, meaning we begin to worship a different God, what does the Bible call that? Uh, idolatry. Now, if you were to look at passages such as 1 Corinthians 10, verses 20 to 22, Old Testament passages, both Paul and the prophets, Moses himself, make this very clear. Don't, don't misunderstand. When you are worshiping idols, that is a different God. You are really worshiping what? Paul says demons. Yes. That is how serious this issue this morning is. And when we start worshiping and following a different Jesus, a different God, little g, we are really following a demon, a different spirit. You see, that's what's at stake here. Now, can I say, <coughs> bear with me with my throat this morning getting over a cold. <clears throat> Paul is saying that there is much at stake. You are receiving a different spirit, and trust me, it is not the spirit of God. You're being led astray as a result. In the past, I've talked about the heart. I want to focus on the mind. I want to focus on our thoughts and, and what we think the truth is. John speaks, uh, uh, writes his letter, 1 John, with a particular man, and, and I should say people who are following him, in mind. And this man's name was Serenthus. Now we read outside of the scriptures, people, <laughs> as they're talking about Serenthus, Serenthus believed that Jesus was simply a man. And <clears throat> at his baptism, he received the Christ, the Logos, and the Logos joined up with Jesus the man and then parted from him at Jesus' death. So was Jesus God? No. He simply had this Logos, this God spirit, if you will, but he was by no means God. And John says this man was truly not a part of us, he is, the, he is the spirit of Antichrist, and this teaching is the spirit of Antichrist, and you are not to follow it. And so he, he actually goes rather in depth, and, and you become impressed with this fact that who Jesus really is, is a big deal. Today, we, there are many voices, many opinions about Jesus and what he accomplished for us that we call the gospel. The mask of liberalism appears to be Christian, but the face behind the mask is demonic. That's one voice. The mask of Jehovah's Witness teaching appears to be Christian, but the face behind the mask is truly demonic. And maybe even on the political stage when Romney was running, the mask of Mormonism. Even, even well-known Christians, television personalities who are pastors of large churches called Mormonism a denomination within Christianity. 
And he was simply expressing, and may I be blunt, he was simply expressing his ignorance about Mormonism. Mormonism wears the mask of Christianity, but the face behind the mask is truly demonic. Who is Jesus? What did he accomplish for us on the cross? This will determine what spirit captures our heart, what spirit leads us either to Christ or astray. And so what I want to do is I want to take the next about 30 minutes, and I want us to focus on two very important elements, Jesus and the cross, the gospel. <laughs> Liberalism basically says this. It looks at the Bible. It says the Bible is filled with nice religious stories, we cannot trust these stories. Thank you, by the way. We call them myth. But they have a religious point, much like a, a fable. You don't ask the question, is the fable true or not? Are the facts true or not? That, that's just not a question you ask. It, it's honestly a silly question. So liberalism seemed to be denying so much of scripture along comes neo-orthodoxy and they, they take on this position. The stories, we don't have to ask the question, are they really historical? Was there an Adam and Eve? Doesn't matter. The flood, did it really happen? Doesn't matter. Did Jesus really bodily rise from the dead? It doesn't matter. What matters is the religious truth. And so people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer William Barclay pioneered, uh, really, they were the face of neo-orthodoxy from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. And it has been, it has been rooted in uh, colleges, seminaries, and led many astray. They believed that Jesus was merely a man and that he, be, he was such a good man that he was the closest thing to divinity. And that's how they view Jesus, if Jesus even lived. So he is our example of what it means to truly be human. And I agree with that statement. But see, Jesus is more. Jesus is more than just a man. Therefore, when Jesus died on the cross, he was merely showing us an example of how we should live. That Jesus died for a greater purpose. And by Jesus dying for our sins, they teach that if we sacrifice for others, as a matter of fact, the more we sacrifice for others, the less we will sin. So by following Jesus' example of dying to self, we will become more and more holy, less and less sinful. And in this way, Jesus died for our sins. Let me show you the way to be holy, sacrifice. But the cross actually accomplished something. It wasn't just an emblem or a standard or an example, though it was surely that. It was far more than this. And in the scheme of universal things, Christ actually accomplished something that was necessary and crucial. But the liberal theology out there that's touted as tolerance and celebrating all religions, embraces all kinds of supposed truths, none of which are really true. Jehovah's Witnesses. And so what I'm going to do, by the way, is I'm going to just look at these three, see how they portray Jesus, see how they portray the cross, because these three, liberalism, Jehovah's Witness, and Mormonism, these three have strong voices in our day and platforms in which people regularly look into. Liberalism is on many campuses that are said to be religious colleges. Jehovah's Witnesses come knocking on our doors. How many of you in the last two months had a Jehovah's Witness knock on your door? Number of hands. Mormonism. You can usually spot them, the young men with riding bikes, white shirt, tie, black pants, clean cut. And they come and they share 
a different Jesus. Here's what's happened, though, with Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism. Both of them were started in the 1800s. Jehovah's Witnesses by Russell, Mormonism by Joseph Smith. <coughs> Their initial purpose was to show how different they were from Christianity. And in essence, saying Christians have gone apostate and we are the true church. Here's what we believe that is so different than Christianity. Come join us. That didn't work too well. Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism did not grow very quickly until they changed their marketing strategy. And I'm implementing that word very purposefully. Their marketing strategy was, we're going to put on this mask. We're going to present to the public the face of Christianity. We're going to show the world how similar we are to Christianity so that people, so that we will become more, the term today is user-friendly, we will become more appealing to the world. And as they come to our churches and they begin to investigate what, what then might be the difference, why are you Jehovah's Witnesses, why are you Mormons, then step by step we will lead them to the truth, how different we are. And can I just say, as I begin to share about Jehovah's Witness and Mormonism, that when you remove the mask, you begin to realize the real face behind the mask. Jehovah's Witnesses taught, teach, that Jesus was Michael the archangel and that he came to the earth, and when he came to the earth, he was transformed into a man. He was no longer Michael the archangel. He was Jesus the man. He was not God. He was a created being, granted the first created being of God the Father, of Jehovah. And when he came to the earth, he ultimately died on the cross. But when he died on the cross, he only died for the 144,000. He did not die for the world. I, be, I think you can begin to see this clearly contradicts scripture, 1 John 2 2. But Jesus then, when he died, he ceased to be man. That was the true sacrifice. He stopped being man. And he assumed to become Michael the Archangel again. He apparently had accomplished Jehovah's goal. That is God's vindication. Should you pick up a watchtower, pick up many, pick up a dozen of them. And as you, not that I suggest you do that, but were you to do this, you would find little, if any, reference to the cross. It is all about God the Father, and it is all about the kingdom halls, their churches. It has very little to do with Jesus, very little to do with the cross, if anything. Because Jesus really didn't come to die for your sins unless you were of that very, very small percentage, about 0.01% of, of believers. Uh, only if you belong to that small percentage did Jesus really die for you. And you will become one day born again. Not here on this earth, but one day, if you have the 144,000, you'll become born again and you will inherit the celestial kingdom. If you are not of the 144,000, you must work and earn your salvation. It is not just faith. That means nothing. It is faith plus works. You must add to the works following the rules that the Jehovah's Witnesses um, I, I was reading uh, 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 online, and, and one gentleman laid out 101 rules within the, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses. You must follow these, and if you follow them and you endure Armageddon, then and only then will you be able to inherit eternal life. <clears throat> if you choose not to believe in Jesus, don't worry about that, because in the millennium, when you live on the earth again, you will have a second chance and nearly everyone during the millennium will believe in Jesus. And voila, you will be able to inherit at least the earthly kingdom and have eternal life. There is no such thing as hell. Hell is not a place. It is simply a furnace that burns you up. It annihilates you. That is basically for the most wicked and for Satan and his angels. And they are, they are burned up, destroyed, and cease to exist. There is no such thing as eternal torment. 
and therefore there is no such thing truly as a place called hell. Mormonism approaches things a little differently. Hmm. Mormons have a, a teaching, a saying that goes somewhat like this. As Elohim was, we are. Elohim being God. As Elohim was, we are. As Elohim is, we shall become. What that means is that God, Elohim, was at one time a sinful human, just like you and me. He sinned. He rebelled against his creator. But he chose to believe in that creator, and he eventually, by doing good works, earned his way, not just to eternal life, but to godhood. Having achieved godhood, his creator gave him an entire universe, and he chose a very special planet. And on that planet, he married another woman, a goddess, and had spirit children. Those spirit children are you and me. They are the entire world and everyone who has lived throughout human history. Their spirits were birthed through Elohim and this female goddess. Our oldest brother, brothers, are Jesus and Lucifer. Jesus and Lucifer are portrayed as brothers, but Lucifer rebelled, he sinned, and a third of Elohim's spirit children followed him, and the others followed the older bro oldest brother, Jesus. God then wanted a way of salvation to redeem them, and so he created the earth, and as generations go, those spirit children are born with physical bodies, and it is a time of testing. Who will you follow? Will you follow Lucifer, or will you follow Jesus? Both of whom are the sons of God. Jesus, when he was born, was a spirit person like you and me. At his baptism, though, he achieved Godhood. He became God. Consequently, when he died, he eventually was raised to life. He now presents us the opportunity to become gods just like he did. And should you follow all of Mormon's rules, you too will one day have a goddess. You will become God and have a goddess. You will have your own universe, be able to populate a planet, and the cycle is continued on for all of eternity. Their plan of salvation is that if you truly believe in Jesus and become a Mormon, you will inherit the celestial kingdom. If you do not believe as they do and work your way towards, towards godhood, you will inherit merely the terrestrial earth. And like Jehovah's Witnesses, the hell is something that is reserved for the baddest of the bad and is not just reserved for those who reject Jesus. And we have this concept that is fairly close, if not, all if not embracing completely the doctrine of what is in liberal, taught in liberalism of universal salvation. Don't worry, if you don't believe in Jesus in this life, you'll get another chance. You know, if you don't become a God in this age, don't worry, you'll have an opportunity throughout eternity. You will eventually be able to achieve Godhood. And so I would imagine that there will eventually be billions upon billions of universes, and we will have the privilege of populating a planet with spirit children. There is a problem with all three of these views. Their first is the focus on Jesus. And turn with me, if you would, to Romans chapter 10. Now, if you've ever learned or having learned shared the Romans road, these two verses, chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, sum up the gospel. We learn that we're sinners, we're enslaved to sin, all of us have sinned. And as we come to this passage, understanding that Christ's death on the cross provided justification, what is our response? Paul tells us that response. <laughs> Verse 
Verse 9. <clears throat> Romans 10. Now, even though the focus here is faith and confession, I am actually going to be looking at this phrase, Jesus is Lord, and what that might mean. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Who is expressly called Lord in that verse? Jesus is. Jesus is Lord. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who trusts in him. Who are we called to trust in according to the previous verse? Jesus. So, well, I'm just trying to help us understand Paul's logic as he brings us along. Him is referring to Jesus. Who trusts in him, who trusts in Jesus, will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all. And who is that Lord? What is his name? Jesus. Thank you. The context makes this very clear. Jesus is Lord. For the same Lord who is Jesus, is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. And who is him? Jesus. So if we call upon Jesus, we will be saved. And Paul now wants to nail this stake in the ground, so to speak, confirm it by a passage in Scripture, specifically Joel 32, and he quotes this passage to prove his point. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Who are we challenged to call upon? What is his name? Jesus. Those who call upon the Lord, Jesus will be saved. Here's the problem. If you were to go to Joel 2.32, you don't find the phrase or the title, Ha Adonai, which is usually the phrase or title that is given, translated the Lord. You don't find that title. Do you know what name you find here? It is Yahweh, Jehovah. It is not Ha'adonai. It is Yahweh. Who is it then that Joel is telling us and Paul confirms that we are to call upon? It is Yahweh. It is Jesus. And very clearly, Paul is saying Jesus is Yahweh. This is the clear teaching of Scripture. We could turn to at least five other passages in the New Testament that when quoted, talking about Jesus, they use this Old Testament verse that speaks of Yahweh, not just Adonai. And by the way, Adonai always is used as a title for Yahweh and for no one else. It was a given amongst Jesus' disciples and early church that Jesus taking upon himself this title, Ha-Adonai, or in the Greek, Ha-Kuriot, the Lord, he was claiming deity. Very clear. So scripture is clear when it teaches that Jesus is God. So what is the big deal? Why is it so important that we believe that Jesus is God? Well, first and foremost... What is the difference between preaching Allah and preaching the Lord, God, the creator, Genesis 1? What is the difference? Because as Muslims portray for us who Allah is, he is incredibly different than the God portrayed in the Bible. So for me to say, well, they're both the same God, silly. They are portrayed completely different, polar opposites. One, the, the, the one in the New Testament, or, or, or in the Old and New Testament, is not only holy, but he is filled with love. That is not the character quality of Allah, of the Muslims. Jesus, according to the Muslims, did not die for the sins of the world. Jesus was simply a prophet superseded by Mohammed. As a matter of fact, Jesus didn't even die on the cross. Barabbas took his place, and Jesus was exempt from that death. 
Jesus certainly did not die for the sins of the world. For them, Jesus absolutely is not God. But why? Why is it so important that we understand that Jesus is God? See, if he is not God, then number one, we should not believe in him. Or certainly not entrust our eternal destinies to him. This is God's place and God's place alone. Only God should steal the affections of our heart. Only if if he is not God, then we should not worship him because only God is to be worshipped. Only God has the love language of worship. He and he alone is the object of our pure and sincere devotion. No one else. Not a mere man or a man who somehow became God, but God himself, Jesus, fully God, fully man. And it is only to a God that we would serve and give ourselves completely even to the point where we are willing to die for him. That is what we are called to to, to in following Jesus. This is what's at stake. If Jesus is not God, if he is merely a man, I refuse to live for a mere man. I refuse to entrust my eternal destiny in a mere man. But Jesus is not a mere man. Jesus is God. And he paid an infinite price for my infinite offense against the infinite holiness of God. Do you follow that? You see, Jesus had to be infinite in his nature, in his character, as God is. A mere man who is finite in his being can never pay the price for an infinite offense. If you were in debt, and that debt had no ceiling, you you could not even, if you were to try and count it, it would take many lifetimes to count this debt and even then you would still be counting and if you went out and you tried to work off this debt and maybe you earned a hundred thousand a year a decent salary and how many of you would love to earn a hundred thousand a year and that'd be great you're earning a hundred thousand a year how how long do you think it would take for you to pay off this debt It would take you many left. As a matter of fact, you would have to work for all eternity. Why? Because this debt is infinite. And so, you would never be able to pay off this debt. No mere man could. Let me introduce you to the one and only one who has infinite resources at his disposal. This is Jesus. Fully God. Fully man. And the price of his life has infinite worth. He has infinite sums of currency. And this is what he uses to pay off your debt. And apart from him, you will spend eternity paying it off. But as Jesus steps in, the God-man, paying with the currency of heaven his own lifeblood of infinite value, your debt is canceled completely. Completely. As a matter of fact, your sins are not only completely paid for, but the punishment, the wrath that God out of his holiness must pour out upon our sin that wrath, that punishment itself is completely paid for, wiped clean. Jesus must also be fully man, fully God, son of God, fully man, son of man. In order to, relieve, in order to redeem our lives with the proper currency, scripture says life for life. He had to be man. He had to pay with his life 
the proper currency in order to rescue me. This then has vast implications for this concept of yours and my sins being forever dealt with and washed away. For me to say, and I'm moving to point number two, the gospel, what the cross actually accomplished, we have to realize that in all other religions, apart from Christianity, they challenge you have faith plus works. And if you have enough works, you might just make it to heaven. But don't count on it. So consequently, Jehovah's Witnesses can never tell you that they're going to heaven. They don't know. They don't know. They hope so. They hope that they work hard enough. Mormons cannot tell you that they will spend forever as a god and populate planets and, and et cetera, et cetera. They don't know because they don't know if they're going to follow the Mormon rules sufficiently. And so there is tremendous uncertainty. But can I ask you, if that was, let's call it a formula for salvation, what does that say about the cross? If it requires you to do something and act what we are communicating without perhaps saying it is that the cross is weak that the cross has insufficient power to rescue me see i need to help god i need to add to that work but when jesus died on the cross right before he said father into your hands i commend my spirit what did he say do you remember he said these three words at least in english he said it is finished. Let me give you an illustration. A man is making a beautiful, beautiful oak table for his friend, and he sands it, stains it, sands it again, stains it again, sands it again, varnishes it, sands it, varnishes it, sands it, varnishes it. And it is absolutely beautiful. It is glossy. The, the way the wood grains reflect in the light is amazing. And he, 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 he covers it with a, uh, a sheet. And during the birthday party, after they sing happy birthday, he, they now move into the another room where they're going to be giving gifts. And the man gives his gift first. And he walks over to the sheet and he pulls the sheet off. And everyone gasps. <sighs> Amazing. But the man who's receiving the gift, reaches over, grabs a piece of sandpaper, runs over to the table, and starts sanding on it. And the man who made the gift, he says, Stop! It is finished! What are you doing? This is perfect. How do you make perfection more perfect? If you try to add to it, see, you're not the expert, I am. I might sound a little proud, but you know what? Hey, I'm the one who built it, and it is perfect. What do you think you're doing? No. Put that sandpaper down. Put it back where you got it. And even so, we can say, well, I believe in Jesus, but if we have this feeling, yet we have to work and earn that salvation, we have just told God the cross is insufficient. It's not finished. I need to add to it. I need to do some more good. And this is clearly contrary to the gospel. Christ died for all of our sins by grace, through faith. We are completely forgiven. Staying in Romans, in chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, it says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works... His wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. And Paul tells us that a righteousness has been revealed to us from heaven it is that righteousness from Jesus that is imparted to us at the moment of faith. How dare us think that somehow my righteousness that Isaiah says are like filthy rags can add anything to the cross. To say so is to diminish 
to weaken, even to nullify the power of the cross. By grace, through faith. John 6, 47, he who believes has eternal life. And as John uses that phrase, eternal life, he is talking to us who are dead, receiving life. And by believing, we possess that life now, as Juliana was sharing earlier. We are dead, and we come to life by grace through faith. Not by faith plus works. By grace through faith. Not by works, so that no one can boast. You see, by, by saying faith plus works, we have communicated to God. And all of these cults and other religions communicate the cross of Christ is weak, it is impotent, it amounts to little, if anything, it is merely an example of love. Let's follow that love. But sinners cannot please God. We must come to life. And then, and only then, empowered by God, can we live a righteous life. It is all by grace. You see, this is the glorious gospel. This is the good news. But we live in a day in which there are many voices. And they all want to be heard. Well, this is what I think Jesus is. The Jesus seminar, oh, the gospel is probably only about 18% of what Jesus said is really found in the Gospels. The rest is chaff. Let it be blown away. The Gospels are legend. They have so missed the mark. Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. Maybe a good religious truth to believe in so we can become a better world. Now this is the truth. It sets men free. Sets men free. This is the truth, who Jesus is. And the power of the cross that transforms us. That if we misunderstand, if our minds are led astray, we will remove ourselves from the pure, sincere, or sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's what's at stake. And should we follow another Jesus and believe in another gospel, let me assure you, you will not be filled with God's spirit for you will be worshiping demons. You will be following the angel of light. Just like Joseph Smith, when that angel of light appeared to him and gave him the Book of Mormon, a book that tries to speak in King James language fest, but all it does is not only plagiarize, but there, it moves so much into falsehood and error and distorts the gospel and who Jesus is, and it has led many astray. Is it any wonder that the very end of this chapter, 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says that Satan masquerades as an angel of light? So who will you follow? Do you want your relationship with Christ ignited? Tune out those voices out there in the world that say, no, 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 we, we have a different brand of Jesus for you to follow today. We have a different cross and gospel guess what you're all going to heaven why because love wins forget about faith faith just has power in this life it can kind of make you uh, live a better life but you know what if, if you choose not to that's okay because when you die you'll get a second chance so you don't need to live you don't need to be devoted to christ now Whew, that cost is pretty high you know in fact some people have actually had to die for what they believe is that really what you want no we live a comfortable life let me tell you about a different jesus let me tell you about a different gospel it is so easy just believe you don't have to give yourself to him and i'm going to conclude with this you see here's the rub faith faith is saying this i am yours that's our response god i am yours i'm it's not, God, let me, let me try and work this thing out. It is, God, I surrender. I am yours. I am, listen to this, your pierced ear slave. You see, in the Old Testament, if a man wanted to remain a slave for his master, with his master forever, throughout his life, even though he could be freed, he would choose, no, I want to be, I like, I like being your servant, your slave. The master would take him to a door and with an all placed up against his ear, 
pound the awl through his ear, and that slave would become a pierced ear slave. And he would serve that master throughout the rest of his life. This is who we are, church. We are Jesus's pierced ear slave. And we follow him and only him. Our minds and our hearts are devoted, sincere and pure devotion to who? To Christ alone. Will you stand with me? Father, we recognize the seriousness of what we're talking about this morning. It is not just a theological matter that's open to debate. This has to do with who we will look for and who we will not. This has to do with what spirit controls us, the spirit of God or the spirit of this world, which is Satan. Much is at stake here. Father, this morning I ask you, please ignite our hearts with sincere and pure devotion to Jesus. And if we are straying and if temptations are leading us down this pathway in which we are turning away from the true and living God, in which we are embracing some other Jesus or some other gospel, or completely turning our backs and we are betraying him, then we are being led astray after another lover. Right now, God, right now, reach down and rescue. Rescue us, God, please, and win our hearts. God, you are so good. Today, we pledge, I am yours, your pierced ear slave. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I encourage you, if you want prayer, we would love to be able to pray for you. And if you're going through some hard circumstances and just trying to wrestle through it, we want to pray for you. God bless you. Have an awesome, awesome weekend. And we will look forward to seeing you this Wednesday night. God bless.